Interstate 75 runs north to south through six states, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida. The 1,786-mile-long highway is ranked fifth out of 50 most dangerous highways in the United States with 47.2 fatal accidents for every 100 miles. Its location makes ideal conditions for human and sex trafficking. This highway is dangerous. We're here to bring light to the crimes and strange stories that occur on the highway and in the cities just off the exits. I'm Lily. I'm Kat. And this is Exit Only. So I got most of my research from a book called Summer's Almost Gone by J.T. Townsend. And he was a teenager in 1966 when this case takes place. So like he was coming of age when this all happened. So he's pretty much devoted his life to solving the case. Um, it was really interesting, especially being from Cincinnati, because it's like a really detailed book. And I just took out some of the main details to tell the story. If you want more detailed, definitely read the book. Um, he takes a deep dive into some other unsolved murders that were happening around the same time. Um, like a lot of them are in the same neighborhood that I live now, which was like really jarring to read street names and apartment buildings that I'm close to. It's kind of uncomfortable, but I think I'll cover those cases in another episode. Cause I had never heard of them. Um, I will say if you plan on reading the book, there are a couple of crime scene photos that are pretty graphic. So definitely don't read it if that isn't your thing. All right. So on September 27, 1966, concerned neighbors decided to check on the Bricka family. No members of the family had been seen since two days prior on the 25th. And when neighbors arrived, they were able to open the unlocked front door at 3381 Greenway Avenue in Cincinnati, Ohio. Upon opening the door, one neighbor, who was a war veteran, immediately recognized the distinct smell of human decomposition. Can you tell me what neighborhood in Cincinnati this is? Well, I will. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't know if you were going to get to <laughs> I'll tell you now. It's in Green Township, but like everywhere calls it Bridgetown, but I don't even like okay. I've never even heard of Bridgetown. Have you? Uh, it's on the west side, right? Like it's yeah. like down. Yes. Do you like know where um like Western Bowl is, the bowling alley in Western Hills? Well, Screen Township, I guess. Maybe Western Hills. I don't know. I don't know. I've been to the I've been to the bowling alley in Western Hills. But it's like I don't know. Well, anyway, it's right behind the this bowling alley. But okay. um technically it's called Bridgetown. But anyway, so some background story on the family. Gerald or Jerry Bricka was born in San Francisco and he received his bachelor's degree in chemical engineering in 1960. Linda was born in 1943 in Barrington Hills, Illinois. She, did I say Illinois? You might have. (laughs) She graduated (laughs) high school a year earlier than expected and had aspirations to become a veterinarian or own a vet clinic. But in April 1961, she began working as a stewardess for United Airlines, and it was on a flight that she actually met Jerry. And they got married on November 25th, 1961. 
And um, they gave, well, she gave birth to her, their only child, Deborah Ann Bricka, on June 6, 1962. And if you're good at math, you'll notice that that means Debbie was born seven months after they got married. So scandal yeah, in the 1960s a little bit. Yeah. Um, after the birth of their daughter, Jerry was transferred for work and they relocated to the quiet neighborhood of Green Township on Cincinnati's West Side. And that was in 1963. Um, Jerry worked as a chemical engineer with a company called, Matt told me how to say this, but I know I'm going to mess it up. I think it's Monsanto. I kept saying it one way and he said it was the other one, but whatever. Regardless. And- Yeah. And Linda stayed home to take care of their child, Debbie, for a few years. But on Monday, September 19th, 1966, Linda decided to return to the workforce as a part-time employee at the Glenway Animal Hospital. And Glenway. Yeah. So it's like, it's just over there, but (laughs) I mean, it's the West side. Like everything is just so, yeah, I don't know anything about the West side. But um, she had been taking the family dogs, Dusty and Thumper, and their pet rabbits and parakeet to this veterinarian since they moved to Cincinnati in 1963. Um, She was just very fond of the clinic. And her now boss, Dr. Leininger, said that Linda had been asking about working at the clinic for quite some time. Like she, I mean, like I said, she really wanted to go into that line of work even when she was in high school. So she was just kind of bugging this guy to get a job. And finally, he gave her one. She was like a secretary. Um, one thing Linda was not a fan of was Cincinnati or the Midwest. She told a friend that she hated their neighborhood and she didn't think that she had anything in common with their neighbors. And, um, she was only 23 and Jerry was 27. So, I mean, it's a little bit of an age gap and she was just a lot younger than the rest of the neighbors. Wait, was she from Illinois though? She, yeah, she was from Illinois, but I guess way more Midwestern. This is, this was confusing though, because, um, something said that she and her family moved to Seattle and they lived in Seattle for a little bit. And that's, it it was like, and that's, I'm obviously very different from the Midwest, but Illinois is like worse than Ohio. So I mean, I agree, but whatever anyway anyway um nonetheless they were a social family they were often hosting barbecues and holiday parties much like 1960s life um seemingly you know living the american dream right right linda was also part of the monsanto wives club which sounds like is another like very 1960s thing but it sounds very like fun but um she didn't like it. <laughs> she <laughs> was like really open. She seems like she didn't really have a filter. And Townsend in his book claims that she would like tell sort of inappropriate jokes that made the other wives uncomfortable. And she oh, was no, like, Linda. <laughs> no, she wasn't reading the room. And she <laughs> even told several of the other wives, like straight to the face, that she just like didn't like him. So very. <laughs> very blunt (laughs) but um and then at one point they were planning this like event a party at western bowl and she was just so unhappy that this is what they were doing with their time she was like i think we should be be doing something that's worth our while like volunteering with animals and everyone disagreed so she kind of like stormed out of the meeting so that's just kind of her temperament there 
On Tuesday, September 27th, 1966, that is when the neighbors started to grow concerned. They noticed a couple strange things. Jerry was last seen between 9 and 10 p.m. on Sunday, September 25th, taking the trash cans to the curb. But two days later, the trash cans were still on the curb and they hadn't been brought up to the house. And Jerry was supposed to fly to West Virginia for a business trip on Monday, the 26th. And he had arranged to pick up his coworker at 6.30 a.m., mm-hmm. but he never showed. So his coworker, Guy Ritchie is his name, he called the Bricka home three times between 6.45 and 6.50 a.m., but they all went unanswered. And no one had picked up the newspapers from the front porch. And both family vehicles were where they had been. Um, Jerry's was in the driveway. Linda's was in the garage. And they hadn't moved for two days, which was not like them. Um, the family next door, the Myers, tried to call the Brickas Again, the calls are going unanswered. And the wife sent her husband over <laughs> to check on them. She was like, something's up. You go check. And so he knocked on the door and didn't get an answer. So instead of like trying to go in on his own, he enlisted the help of another neighbor, Richard Jansen. So that's two Richards. Um, <laughs> the two entered the unlocked home around 1040 PM. And as I mentioned at the mentioned at the beginning of the story, one of the neighbors, Meyer was a world war II veteran. And he later said he immediately recognized the smell of human decomposition because he oh, no. smelled it when he was in the war. Yeah. So um, I don't know why they didn't call the cops right then when they smelled that, but they didn't. They decided to go upstairs. And so when they walked upstairs, upstairs they discovered the bodies of Jerry and Linda Bricka on the floor of their bedroom. Linda was found face up laying across her husband's body like his um, upper back and neck. And she was wearing mm-hmm. a house coat over a nightgown, which was open and it was exposing her chest. And Jerry was lying face down on the ground, still wearing the clothes he had been seen in on the 25th. That's so sad. No. And unfortunately, in the next bedroom, four-year-old Debbie Brickett was found dead on the floor as well. And it was then, I know. And it was then that Meyer and Jansen decided to call the police. So when police arrived, they noticed no signs of forced entry. Both the front door and back door were unlocked and there were no signs of a struggle like uh, on the bodies, like no signs of a struggle as well as like nothing was really out of place. Um, So that was interesting, but some good news is the police found the family's two dogs, Thumper and Dusty unharmed locked in a back room of the house. And when the, do you think they did that? Or do you think, I mean, you'll probably get to that, I guess. I will probably, I will probably get to that. Probably definitely. Yes. Okay. That's like a big point in this case. It's very strange. Yes. Yes, I'll talk about it in a little bit. Um, When the police made their way to the couple's bedroom, they noticed that it appeared the family had been getting ready for bed um, at the time of their death based off of the fact that Linda and Debbie were both um, dressed for bed. Jerry was found with a sock stuffed in his mouth and a piece of tape was found on his body indicating that he and Linda had been bound at some point, although there was nothing currently binding them. Almost all the drawers were pulled open yet no furniture or lamps were like knocked over or askew. And that kind of to the police suggested that the scene may have been staged to look like a burglary. Also, um, Jerry's wallet was found on the bed. So interesting. Like, nothing of value was really taken. So that's weird. 
someone just wanted to kill them. Yeah. (laughs) One investigator said that the scene was compromised almost immediately. People were walking around. There were a lot more people there than was necessary. Like firefighters were there. I don't know. There was just a lot of extra people. They were picking things up, not really following protocol. And protocol is like, is to call the coroner right away. And the coroner wasn't called until 2.30 a.m. And I don't know exactly when the police got there, but Meyer and Jansen entered the home at 10.40 p.m. So from between 10.40 and 2.30 a.m., the coroner didn't get there. So that's just interesting. And I don't know about all those other murders going on in Cincinnati. Apparently, allegedly, allegedly. Well, it's not allegedly. There were other murders happening. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe he was maybe just busy. He was just given the benefit of the doubt. But he wasn't even called there. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Yeah, That's problematic. Yeah. They didn't even try calling. But and then another like weird thing that I don't really know what to make of. I just like read this and I don't know. Thought I didn't include it. But a rug at the scene was vacuumed and then removed for analysis, which is, <laughs> I don't what think that's world? how you do things. Cause why would you vacuum potential evidence? But yeah. And then I thought maybe they were just using the stuff that they vacuumed up and looking at that, but still, it seems like you would want to see it. And like, it's like, I don't know. I've watched a lot of crime team shows and seen a lot of people get yelled at for. Yeah. Tampering it's like tampering. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Kind of what that it was the 60s so um they didn't really know a lot of things <laughs> i guess not no and among the evidence they collected they were able to retrieve like one usable fingerprint which later didn't even turn up to be helpful so and then yeah dna wasn't a thing back then so all right um trigger warning i'm gonna talk about the manner of death so Skip ahead a little bit if you don't want to hear it, but Kathleen, you cannot skip ahead. Okay. So <laughs> the autopsy has confirmed that Linda and Jerry were both found at some point because there were market markings located on their wrists and all victims died of stab wounds to their chest and back. The murder weapon was likely a six and a half inch knife that was found missing from a carving set. That was actually a family heirloom and wedding gift from Linda's parents. Oh, that's so, so sad. That's really sad. And it was has it has never been found. So I don't know. What? I know. And Jerry had been stabbed nine times while Linda was stabbed eight times. And again, trigger warning, Linda had also either been raped or had recently had intercourse with someone who was not her husband. They weren't really able to tell if it was rape or consensual. And Gosh. Now, talk about Debbie, the Bricka's four-year-old daughter. She had been stabbed four times, and the knife had gone completely through her body and made cuts in the rug underneath each time she was Oh, my God. So that's, like, it's a a six-and-a-half-inch knife, and it's going through, like, entirely through her body each time. And she's a four-year-old. What is she going to... Exactly. How is she that much of a threat to you? Exactly. And then, as I said earlier, there were no signs of a struggle, although it appeared as though Debbie had been dragged from under her bed where she may have been hiding. Oh, that is really sad. Yeah, it's just really terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that's awful. But um, about the investigation, right away, police wondered if the family had known their killer. So first of all, there was no signs of forced entry, but like I said, both the front and back doors were unlocked. So, I mean, 
you would think someone could probably just have walked in without force, mm-hmm. but, um, and if they knew them, like right. they wouldn't have needed to struggle yeah, to get in. Exactly. And this is interesting. The neighbors reported that they did not hear any sounds coming from the house. And that includes not hearing any barking despite both dogs reportedly being aggressive towards strangers. So if the suspect was a stranger, it stands to reason that the dogs probably would have been aggressive and barked, but they did not. And one neighbor noted that the dogs were unusually quiet even after the murders and wondered if they had been drugged. But unfortunately, no testing was ever completed to confirm or refute that. So we don't know if the dogs were drugged or not. But um, one neighbor, Richard Meyer, the World War II veteran, told police that Jerry typically put the dogs in the basement when they had company, which would explain why the dogs were put away. If the family did know their attacker, maybe they just put them in that back room instead of the basement this time. But um, and then, like you said, why kill the four year old? Police wondered if it was because Debbie would have recognized the killer, like maybe she saw them and would have been able to identify them or knew them. Yeah, well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like. Would have been able to identify them because she knew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But over 400 interviews were conducted, like, of anyone that was even remotely related to the family, like, had any relationship, like, a bunch of um, Jerry's co-workers. It's just 400 interviews. and a lot. Unfortunately. To come up with nothing. (laughs) Yes. And unfortunately, that neighbor, Meyer, was the target of harassment from a lot of people accusing him of the murders. Um, He was receiving phone calls of people accusing him. He even went so far as to change his phone number. But after he did this, he started getting phone calls at his work. So it was just terrible. Um, Police cleared him pretty quickly. And it was reported that he was always very cooperative with police And, um, one sad thing I read is that he died just a few years later after the murders at the age of 41 and his family stated that they always considered him the fourth victim of the Bricka murders because he was so affected by it and definitely being like in World War II and then thinking like you're going home and not going to see that kind of stuff anymore. And then you see it at your name. That is so sad. Yeah. That is horrible. I know. And like. Being from Cincinnati, I just, like, hadn't heard of this case. Like, I've heard of it, but not the details. I hadn't until you brought it up. Yeah, I know. And here's this next thing. Another theory police had was the Cincinnati Strangler. I didn't know there was a Cincinnati Strangler. I didn't either. And it was just a few years, like, after the Boston Strangler. But... What? I know. And... All of the crimes of like the Cincinnati Strangler are detailed in Townsend's book. Like he goes into detail about like anything that was even remotely surrounding the Bricka case. So because the police thought maybe the Cincinnati Strangler was involved, Townsend goes into detail there. But um, there were seven unsolved murders, including the Brickas in the Cincinnati area over a 10 month period around the mid 1960s. So around that time. Wow. And in addition to the murders, there were a number of break-ins and assaults at the time, all attributed to the strangler, or they thought it might be him. And, but all of that was sort of like on the East side, like Walnut Hills, Avondale and Clifton. So that was interesting, but everyone was like on high alert and tensions were pretty high. 
And in addition to the Brickas, four women have been murdered. And of those four, three were raped and strangled while one was stabbed. (laughs) It's terrible. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. It's just so terrible. That's why I laughed. But (laughs) okay. While one was stabbed while being after being run over with a stolen cab. So that's just what I know. I wonder, I wish that we could ask our grandparents if they remember this. Well, I asked dad, I asked our dad last night (laughs) and I asked him if he remembered the Bricka murders at all. And he would have been, he was only, yeah, he was pretty young. He would have been six. And he says he remembers like something going on and, but he doesn't remember what, like he remembers grandma, our grandma being like kind of like on edge but yeah, I because they lived that. on the west side, like they yeah. lived in Price Hill. Yeah, they were pretty close. And with all like the these break-ins happening too. Like yeah. yeah. But I can't imagine. No. Um, however, all of the murdered women were in their late to mid-50s while Linda was 23 at the time of her death. And um the Bricka family wasn't strangled, they were stabbed. So right. And like I said, all that was happening on the east side while the Brickas were on the west side. And um, the Cincinnati Strangler was described as a black man by the um, their surviving victims. And the police believe it's a man that was identified as Postal Lasky Jr., which that was a whole other thing in the books. So I'm not going to go into that, but they identified him as Postal Lasky Jr. And investigators in the Bricka murders were confident that the perpetrator was white. Huh. How they came to that. But, and they were also confident that the family knew their killer. So they don't think it was like a random happenstance. Um, the next theory and the most popular theory is that Linda's employer at the Glenway Animal Hospital, Dr. Fred Leininger, was responsible for the murders. So it was rumored that he and Linda had been having an affair and that Linda wanted to end their relationship. Even Jerry's co-workers at Monsanto believed Linda was having an affair. So it was, I mean, everyone kind of thought that's what was happening, but, you know, the rumor mill. Either way, if there was an affair or not, Jerry had confided in his friend that he and Linda were having a bit of a dry spell. And Linda confided in her friend that she was actually planning to leave Jerry. And yeah. And she had even taken a trip to her parents' home as like a trial separation from him. And Linda told her mother that his temper had returned and he was not taking his medication. And I couldn't find what medication he was on, but that was just an interesting note. This is so um, sad to me because they they didn't know each other for very long before they got married and they got right. married because it was the 60s and she was pregnant and yeah they, but you know what I'm saying yes in Townsend's book he had like an interview from Jerry's parents who said like no Jerry didn't like marry her because of that like he was in love with her is like what they said but I yeah, mean, well, that's what any parents would have said. Yeah, and we have like no not, way of saying for sure, but no, and it's not a bad thing if that's right. what they thought was the right thing. But it does mean they probably didn't know each other very well. Exactly. And if she was that she didn't really want to move to Cincinnati, all the things mm-hmm. like, yeah, I don't know. I hate that. That's so sad. I know. Um, on the Wednesday before the murders, a neighbor was babysitting Debbie. And both Jerry and Linda were later than they said they would be to pick her up 
Linda arrived after Jerry and she said she was late because she was staying late at work to help Dr. Leininger with a cat that had been hit by a car and had ultimately died. And, you know, at first Jerry was like upset that she was late because he knew she, he knew she was with Dr. Leininger. But when she said like a cat died, he felt kind of sad because he knew how much she loves animals. And so he like embraced her and then he pulled away because her breath smelled like whiskey. And he was like, why is your breath smelling like whiskey? And she said she and the doctor had had a drink after the death of the cat because they were both upset. And the neighbor later huh. recalled Jerry replied to that and said, I should go over there and beat him up. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Jerry. I know. Interesting, huh? And then on Thursday, the 22nd, so the next day, Linda called a neighbor's house to see if they could watch Debbie between 7 and 9 p.m. because she had been called into work for Dr. Leininger. But an interesting mm. note there is that the vet clinic's hours were they were closed by noon on Thursdays. I was going like, to say 7 to 9 p.m. are weird times yeah. for a veterinary's office. Yeah. So like it wasn't open. So that's interesting. But um, the family couldn't watch Debbie's and it's unknown whether or not she was able to find a babysitter or why she claimed she was called into work when the clinic was closed. And just like a couple more instances like that happened, like things not lining up or contradictions, that sort of thing. Um, But the police were pretty heavily invested in the theory that Leininger was responsible According to an article from the Cincinnati Enquirer at that time, police indicated that they were following literally his every move. They were st- um, stationed outside his house. They were watching him from when he left for work in the morning to when he returned at night. They were even going so far as to eat in the same restaurant as him on his lunch breaks. Wow. Yeah. And Leininger was cooperative with police at first, but his story was inconsistent and he made several contradictions. One important one being, a, a lie about the last time he saw Linda. If it whether it was a lie or just he forgot, I don't know. But not a great pretty, look either way. Not a great look. <laughs> um, it's important detail to remember in a murder investigation. Yeah. But um, he abruptly ended his second interview with police, and he lawyered up pretty quickly after that. Which, like, convenient. That's what I would do too, even if I wasn't. Well, guilty. yeah, you know that's a smart thing to do, but it does make you look a little bit guilty. Just a little. Yes. Anyway, he was never charged with anything, and he ran his veterinarian veterinary practice until 1995. So wow, yeah, and he retired in 1995, and then in 2004, police were called to a hotel room at the Omni Netherland Hotel in downtown Cincinnati. And it was there that police discovered Dr. Fred Leininger and his wife, Lynn, with plastic bags tied around their heads and an empty bottle of morphine nearby. What? Excuse me. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. That's a really. Okay. What what did they think happened? (laughs) Well. Like a murder-suicide or they were just like, they're done. They tried to commit soup. Well, okay. Here, let me finish this. Oh, that's Dr. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Dr. Leininger <laughs> was pronounced dead at the scene. And it seemed he had been, been dead for like a little bit. But Lynn was still alive. What? And she was comatose. But she was, oh unfortunately, 
I mean, fortunately, she wasn't dead, but then she was transferred to a hospital and she couldn't like answer any questions. Right. And uh, she lived for another 10 months before passing away. Oh, wow. But she could never answer like any questions about why they did that. But she she was was never in a coma. Yeah, she was still in a coma. Oh, my. That is awful. I know. But she was never like cooperative with police either. Like she the police came to their house one time when the vet, well, Dr. Leininger was at work and she was like, my husband told me just to give you this. And it was like their lawyer's card. So like she never talked. But I don't really know what to think about that theory because if it is him it makes sense that there would be no signs of forced entry because they know they knew him and that yes. the dogs wouldn't bark because they knew him they he had been treating those dogs since like for three years at that point he had been treating right those dogs. and it makes sense that he would have left the dogs alive because he's a veterinarian like he's not gonna hurt dogs right but he would maybe people. People. yeah i mean we don't know for sure but also if the dogs were potentially drugged a vet would have access to those drugs and know like the correct dosage you know yeah yeah and i mean then in the obvious if he's committing suicide maybe it's a guilty conscience but on the other hand maybe he was just so harassed by police following his every move that you know he just couldn't take it anymore but it's really interesting that his wife would do it too that's why i can't get over like if he drugged her and then she, you know what I'm saying? And then he made yeah. it look that way. That's like he could have framed it. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. I don't know. I just, cause I can't come up with enough. I don't know. I can't come up with another scenario that makes a lot of sense. And that's such like a specific way. Yeah. Like I don't know. Well, like, you know how when women commit suicide, they do it in like kind of passive ways. Yes, and that's how that feels. Yeah, yeah. It I don't feel like you're like commit, maybe committing. Maybe she sounds terrible, commit. but yeah, she. But that's the thing. We don't know. She couldn't talk. We don't she know. Tell we, don't us. Know. we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> and then just some interesting notes that I like couldn't fit in anywhere else. Really, is um, around one thirty a.m. on Sunday, September twenty fifth, nineteen sixty six. So that last day that anyone in the family was seen a 23 year old woman, Donna Dixon was babysitting at a home less than a mile from the brick of house. She recalls looking out the living room window and seeing a young man in the driveway. She said he was pacing back and forth and appeared to be talking to himself before he left five minutes later. And when the family that she was babysitting for returned back, they indicated they had recently heard strange noises from the yard as well as found scratches on the front doorknob. How about that? How about that? And I was just thinking, like, if I was that babysitter, I'd be so pissed that <laughs> they didn't tell me and they left me alone with their kids. I don't yeah. know, kids, kids, whatever. That I was left alone in their house with a strange man outside. And then that same day, around 2.30 p.m., police received a report of a naked man standing in the rain on the sidewalk about a quarter mile from the house. And the woman who made the report, Emily Stout, was unable to be located after the Brick of Family murder. So they couldn't like confirm that. What in the world? I know. Weird, right? And then yeah. around 4 p.m. that day, nearby neighbors on Lawrence Avenue reported seeing two individuals going door to door. 
And one neighbor said that they were just taking a survey for a local church. But after the murders, the police made a plea for those individuals to come forward and they never did. This is weird. I know. And then, like I said, over 400 interviews were conducted, but no one has been identified as the culprit in the murder of Jerry, Linda, or Debbie Bricka. It's still an unsolved case over 55 years later. But if you do have any information, please submit a tip to the Ohio Attorney General at ohioattorneygeneral.com or call 1-855-224-6446. And that's the sad story of the Bricka family murders. So sad. I just can't understand. I don't know. I, the vet did it, right? Right. <laughs> I know, but we can't say for sure. We can't I don't know for sure, but also he did but it. Also, yeah, that's pretty much what everybody thinks. And that's what I think JT Townsend thinks, the guy who wrote this wrote book. the book. Well, yeah. I think just because of things like whoever did it trying to make it look like a burglary, but yes. not like being very good at making it look like right. a burglary. He just doesn't seem like the smartest dude to me. No. I don't know. Like, must be smart if he like if he did do it. That's true. Well, it. or I mean, like if he's a vet, I feel like you know those are smart people. So I don't I know. Don't know. Um, That's so sad. All of it is so sad. But I just feel like I mean I don't know if they had kids, the vet and his wife. But mm-hmm. I mean I can't imagine murdering anyone. Right. <laughs> definitely can't imagine murdering a four year old. No. And. If the person that did murder them murdered them because they were worried she would like she recognized them like it had to be someone that they knew pretty well because she's four, you know? Yes. Yep. I just it's so terrible. That was a really sad one. I know. Sorry. It's okay. It's fascinating. Uh, It was a pretty interesting one, but it is really sad. Yeah. We haven't talked about how we're going to end these. (laughs) 